Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So let's look at Revelation uh, chapter 2, beginning verse 18, and then going through the end of the chapter. This is the church at Thyatira, which we might call the tolerant church because they were tolerating evil in their midst. Or the impure church because uh, they had a problem with sexual immorality in the church. So the seven letters to the churches were churches that were in existence at Jesus' time. And he was writing about present-day churches. Some people think they might reflect periods of history. I'm not sure about that. But we have plenty plenty to go on from the message that he had to those churches because it so much applies today also. And then he begins discussion of what the future events are going to be in chapter 4. So this is the fourth church. It's actually the smallest of the churches, the smallest of the cities that he addresses, but it's the longest of the letters. And they had a problem with sexual morality, which as you know is a pervasive problem in the church, always has been and is today as well. Um, Thyatira was a smaller city, but it was known for its many guilds or, you know, business associations, uh, unions type of things. And it also was known for um, dying things like in purple because Lydia, we know from Acts chapter 16, uh, was a lady who was selling cloth, dyed in purple. And she was from Thyatira. So it would be tempting in that city to want to do business with people and to join in these business guilds, but sometimes to do so, kind of like going to your Christmas office party, your office Christmas party, where you may be, you may be tempted to compromise your morals for the sake of business and making business contacts and associates. And so the people who were in these business guilds perhaps were tempted to join in the idle feasts to be along with their associates <clears throat> to keep their businesses going. And they had that kind of pressure going on. And we know that the idol feasts uh, usually contained some form of sexual immorality. Um, and we know that from uh, 1 Corinthians and what Paul wrote to them, especially chapter 6, chapter 8 through 10. And so there was that problem. So he introduces this by saying, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, and the angel being the prop perhaps the pastor or an angel, if you want to take it that way. These things says the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. This is the first time that the term Son of God is used of Jesus here, the only time in the book of Revelation. It refers to his deity, that title, the Son of God. And I think it's going to show that he has the right to judge as God's Son because he's going to talk about judgment in a minute. In fact, the eyes like a flame of fire seem to speak of that discerning judgment that can see through everything and discern God's will like in Hebrews uh, chapter 4 verse 12 uh, where we're judged by the word of God which discerns even to our most innermost being and our sinews. So these blazing eyes of fire perhaps refer to Jesus's all-knowing judgment and feet like fine brass 
or burnished brass could refer to his strength. Brass pictures strength and perhaps uh, the posture of a warrior. We could probably go back into the Old Testament and compare a lot of passages to discern more meaning from that. But it's picturing Jesus as the judge here, the Son of God. And then he commends them. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So this church had good works. They knew how to love, whereas you remember he addressed the loveless church earlier, and Ephesus had lost its first love. This church was continuing in love. They were serving God in their way. They had faith and uh, patience or endurance in the truth. So they had good works, and he says that your works, the last are more than the first. So they seem to be increasing, which is good. This church was increasing in the work they were maturing spiritually. So it's a really good com- commendation from him. They were doing some good things. But the complaint comes in verse 20 through 23, and it's a rather lengthy complaint. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things offered sacrifice to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So what's going on here? Jesus says that he, what he holds against them is that there is a woman named Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. <clears throat> so she's a self-proclaimed prophetess. She's not a genuine prophet. Um, very easy to call yourself a prophet and use that uh, false authority to coerce people. And that's what she was doing. She was teaching and seducing people in the church, not the whole church it seems, but some population in the church, some segment of it, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed idols, which implies that they were going to these idol feasts, which could have been a problem, as I said, to fit into the business world there, to make a living. You had to kind of do what you thought you had to do, which was join in these idol feasts. And those idol feasts weren't just feasts, to these pagan idols, they usually involve some kind of uh, sexual immorality with prostitutes, male and female. And so he says, I gave her time to repent of that, and she did not repent. So he gives her time to change her mind, but she just refused to, evidently very stubborn in her wickedness. Now, the name Jezebel we don't know if that's a real name or if that's a symbolic name, but it pictures the woman Jezebel from 1 Kings uh, chapter 16 all the way through 2 Kings chapter 9. And you remember how wicked she was married to Ahab. She was a very wicked woman. And she killed the prophets of Israel and even Elijah ran from her. That's how bad she was. So it's, kind of, it's a name that certainly stands for evil, whether that's her real name or not. She's a, we even use the term today sometimes when we say somebody's a Jezebel. Don't want to be called that, I don't think. So she seems to have a false doctrine, but false doctrine, as almost always, has moral implications. 
people who teach false doctrine often will easily fall into some kind of immorality. We see that in a lot of the cults, I think, when we look at them and, and the authoritarian leadership, false doctrine, and then you find sexual immorality in the cult. Uh, you found it, you know, in Waco with the Davidians and, and many other cults that we could go on and name. And he, he talks about uh, adultery and he talks about sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality is the word sometimes translated fornication. It's from the Greek word porneia, and it can mean all kinds of sexual immorality, actually. We usually re- refer to the word fornication as sex outside of marriage or just any kind of immoral sex. Um, and then we use the word adultery as sex outside of marriage. But he's, uh, he's rebuking both here. And um, in, in verse 20, he mentions sexual immorality. In verse 21, sexual immorality. And then in verse 22, he mentions the word adultery. So they were evidently involved in all of that. But she rejected God's opportunity to repent and change her mind, change her ways. God was patient with her, is what I think the message is here. Jesus was patient with her. And as we <coughs> learn from the book of Jonah, which we've been studying, God is patient with people, and he wants to give them time to repent. Second Peter 3.9 says that God is patient, not willing that any should perish. And so in his great patience she still did not repent and so he cast her into a sickbed I take it that this woman is very very ill perhaps terminally ill because we know that God uses illness sometimes to discipline his people first Corinthians eleven thirty would be an example of that people who abused the Lord's Supper uh, were sick and died and into great tribulation um, I don't think that's really speaking about the great tribulation unless you were to compare this to a church age, but it's just speaking of great trouble. She's sick, has great trouble. Uh, those who follow her um, into this kind of uh, sexual immorality have great trouble in their lives and unless they repent of their deeds. So he's still giving time them to, for them to do that. And his threat in verse 23 is that he's going to kill their, her children with death. I don't know any other way to take that than to mean physical death, that some physical death will come upon them if they persist in these sins. And when that happens, the churches are all going to know that Jesus is the judge, that he searches the minds and hearts, and he judges according to their works. So it'll be a testimony to others. I think that's one of the um, purposes of discipline, when God disciplines his people or his churches, is to put a little bit of uh, fear into the hearts of those who see it happening so that they will not go down the same path. So it looks like a dead end for the woman and those who follow her, and maybe the church itself. Today there is no church in Thyatira for whatever reason, but it does not exist today. And then in verses 24 through 25, he gives them counsel. He says, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, which I take would be the majority, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, 
but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So he's addressing those in Thyatira who have not followed this woman and her beliefs and have not known the depths of Satan, that whatever it was that they called the depths of Satan. We don't know, excuse me, we don't know exactly what he's referring to here. Um, it could be when he says the deep things of Satan, um, it could mean that there was a certain belief in, in different levels of spirituality, um, some influence of Gnosticism, um, which meant that there was some secret knowledge that you could come into, and that would be referred to as the depths of Satan. He could be ironic in saying that they claim to know the depths of, the depths of God, but really it's the depths of Satan by following her. Whatever it was, it was satanic. And we know that he had said to the church of Pergamum that Satan dwells there. So Satan is behind all the evil in these churches, as we see, behind this cultic woman he calls Jezebel and her idolatrous worship. And he says he doesn't want to put on them any other burden in verse 24. I think what he's saying is that you're obeying, you're on a good path, you that have not followed her, so I'm not going to give you other things that you have to do. Just, just hold on, hold fast till I come. Just keep enduring in obedience and good works till I come. Now this is the first time Jesus mentions his coming in what I believe would be the rapture for them, if, since it would be eminent to them, um, surprise. And of course, um, that will be the theme of the rest of the book of Revelation when he comes. And I think the rapture is implied other places. And then the second coming, of course, is what the book is about. So the last four of the churches, this is the fourth, so the last four, number five, six, and seven as well, kind of look forward to Christ's coming, where it hasn't been, um, hadn't been a really issue in the other churches. And he gives a promise, as he does at the end of all of his letters, of some kind of reward. And he says in verse 26 through 29, he who overcomes, well, he, the one who persists and overcomes with faithfulness through these difficult times and keeps my works until the end. To him I'll give power over the nations. And he quotes Psalm 2. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. So the promise is those who are faithful and persist and overcome evil will have power over the nations. In other words, they will participate in Christ's rule. When he comes as the Messiah, Psalm 2 predicts, verses 8 and 9, Psalm 2 predicts he will rule them with a rod of iron. The word rule here is actually the word shepherd, used for the word shepherd. So he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. So it makes us think of a shepherd's rod, which was used to guide the sheep, but also to discipline and keep them in line. So the when Christ rules as the Messiah, he will have a very strict rule to keep people in line like a, like a good shepherd would. And it, it means that those who oppose him will be dashed to pieces um, like the potter's vessels, like 
piece of clay pot. So I think this speaks of uh, a reward that might be enjoyed during the millennial period when Jesus Christ comes and rules. And there's a number of other passages in the Bible talk about Christ ruling, like uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, if we uh, endure suffering, we will reign with him, or 2.12, I think it is. Chapter 3 and verse 21 says, um, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So this theme of ruling with Christ is something that runs throughout the New Testament. And Jesus said in his parables that those who are faithful stewards, some will rule over five cities, some will rule over ten cities. So it's a reward to serve alongside of Jesus Christ as one of his, uh, Hebrews would say, one of his companions, partners, and, uh, and to rule the earth with him is quite a privilege. And then he says, I will give them the morning star. It's hard to be certain exactly what that would refer to, although the idea of a star is sometimes used in the context of ruling. And in fact, <clears throat> Numbers 24, verse 7, I think, is worth looking at. Let me give us a little context, a little insight. Numbers 24 in verse 17 in the, in the Balaam, what we call the Balaam oracles. And as Balaam's fourth prophecy, this is what he said. I see him, but not now. I behold him, that would be the Messiah, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. That's the Messiah. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumal. In this context, the star from Jacob with a scepter implies the rule of Christ in his messianic rule. So when we talk about the, I will give them the morning star, he, he again could be emphasizing the idea that they will be ruling with him in the millennial period. Uh, could be a, a symbol of victory, of course, a morning star is always a symbol of hope and light and um, could be in this context as well, ruling. But I think altogether what it pictures is that we have a very, those who overcome will have a very close relationship, an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in the future. And I think that, that is a common theme in all of the letters. When we look at all the rewards in these letters, they all seem to imply some closer, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, like sharing in his rule. <clears throat> and then in verse 29, he ends the letter by saying, he who has near to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, listen up. Listen up. Be spiritually tuned in. Now, I think this was addressed to a church at, in the city of Thyatira at the time of Jesus it had these problems. Um, some people think that it also looks forward to a period of history that's hard to know and determine because it becomes very subjective. But some people postulate that this was speaking of the Middle Ages, of the Dark Ages in history from about the 600s to the 15, early 1500s when the Roman Catholic Church was really the only church there was. It was in authority. It was pushing people to do things contrary to Scripture like uh, the worship of Mary and some people think that Jezebel, Mary, would be a uh, comparison. 
And uh, so Rome, the Roman Catholic Church took the theology, their theology, and joined it to pagan practices and rituals. And so you had the worship of icons and statues and Mary and uh, the beginning of a lot of other things like mass and um, some of the other sacraments. We don't know if it's talking about that period of history. That's a very difficult thing to determine, but that's what some people think. What can we learn from this letter to this church, what we would call the tolerant church? When Jesus says, uh, you know, um, till I come, hold fast what you have till I come. That kind of includes us in the crowd because if he's speaking there of his rapture, which is yet to happen, then he's telling us that the message does is to be faithful until he comes as well. This church had allowed sexual immorality in their midst. They had tolerated it. And I think what it shows is that Jesus doesn't take sexual immorality lightly. He takes it seriously. And therefore, we should take it seriously as well. But I think that there's so much of it that we see in our churches today and in our society, which the church kind of absorbs a lot of the society's values. We become numb to it. We don't blush at it anymore. It doesn't shock us anymore. Um, I don't want to go into a list of the things that we see around us. You know, you have a television, you turn it on, you know what's going on. You walk down the street, you know what's going on. But even things like a sac uh, something sacred like marriage is, is kind of ignored and people are having sex outside of marriage. Even Christians are having sex outside of marriage quite a bit. And I think the reasoning is, well, everybody's doing it as long as we love one another. Um, and we're going to get married anyway someday. You know, whatever excuse they use. Um, one statistic I read said 36% of evangelical Christians thinks that sex outside of marriage is okay if two people are committed and consensual. So that's one out of, more than one out of three people saying it's okay to have sex before or even after you're married with somebody else. Uh, if as long as you love that person, you're committed to that person. And that spirit is uh, pervaded, I think, in our church today. And we need to be aware of it and take sexual immorality seriously as Jesus did. I think another thing we see is that uh, personal purity impacts the whole church. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where the man was having sexual relations with his stepmother evidently, uh, Paul had to bring a, that in, to a complete halt by threatening discipline to that man. He takes it very seriously. He didn't want it like a little bit of leaven to leaven the whole church and to infect the whole church. Because even though it may not be sexual immorality, one sin usually leads to another. When you think about it, if you commit sexual immorality, if someone commits sexual immorality, they're going to commit a lot of other things like lying to somebody, coveting something that's not theirs, um, stealing somebody something that's not theirs, and so forth. So it always, always in, involves other sins as well. And it can restrict God's blessing on that church. And I think that's what Paul wanted to see in the Corinthian church was God to bless them and, and not um, impede their growth 
in him because of the sin of sexual morality. And I think that the same thing would apply to this church in Thyatira, that he knows if they continue to tolerate this kind of sexual immorality, that it, it, it will influence the whole church. Uh, we're, what individuals do can influence the whole group. And that's, I think, true of a church. And it, we think of the story in um, Joshua chapter 7, where Achan sinned by withholding some things he wasn't supposed to, and because of that, Israel lost the battle of Ai until they discovered what he did done wrong and punished him for it, killed him for it. But that secret sin caused all of Israel to suffer. And I think even secret sins within the church can cause perhaps a church to suffer um, because the influence spreads by means of lies and, and example and so forth. So there's no such thing really as a pure church. There's only pure people. And the church can only be as pure as its people. I think something else we see is that we shouldn't tolerate sexual immorality and allow it to persist in the church. But we should deal with it sharply, just as Paul's example shows in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in church discipline. Church discipline is not a pleasant thing to do, but sometimes it's necessary to do. It helps the indiv- it's meant to help and restore the individual and to declare what is good and right. It's an example to other believers in the church. And if we don't exercise church discipline, um, people can do anything without fear of consequence. We see that in our society today by these uh, very liberal attorney generals not prosecuting crime. Well, what, do you, what happens when you don't prosecute crime? You get more, more crime. If you don't deal with sexual morality in the church, in a biblical way, then you're going to get more sexual immorality. But not many churches practice church discipline. They think it's unloving, where the opposite is actually true. It's a loving thing to do for God. It's a loving thing to do for the people. It's a loving thing to do for the sinning individuals. But yet, very few churches practice it. When uh, our former president fell into sexual sin and was caught doing it, he was a member of uh, a Southern Baptist Church in Arkansas, and I was wondering how the church dealt with it. So, and I was writing an article on church discipline at the time. So I called the church in um, Arkansas and I said, uh, uh, the president belongs to this church, yes. His membership is here, yes. Uh, I was just wondering, is the church planning to discipline, for, discipline him for his sexual immorality that was discovered? And uh, long story short, she said, oh, we don't do that kind of thing here. We don't do that kind of thing here. That was their attitude towards it. So I think what the message for us is don't tolerate sexual immorality. It can grow like a cancer. But we live in an age where people claim to be very tolerant. But the definition of tolerant has really changed. The definition of tolerant really is you can have a different opinion from mine, but I can live with it. I can live alongside of you. Uh, even though we may have a a disagreement about something. But now the definition of tolerance seems to reject absolute truth, and to be tolerant, you have to accept everything and everybody as being right and true. So I'm intolerant. If if you say Jesus isn't God, and I say Jesus is God, then you would say I'm intolerant. Or if I said that sex between 
two people who are not married is sexual immorality, you would say I'm intolerant because the new definition says there's no such thing as absolute truth and you can't be so dogmatic to know that what is absolutely true, so you're intolerant. And that's why we have so many people today saying that Christians are intolerant because they believe something is absolutely true. Whereas the old definition used to be if, if you can believe something differently and I can live with you now, you have to believe like I do or you have to reject absolute truth. So anyway, it's really messed up. G.K. Chesterton said tolerance is a virtue of people who have no convictions. It's a virtue of people who have no convictions. And then I think um, what we also learn is that we should repent and turn from personal sin. And of course this is where it comes down to our own lives because sexual temptation is just as strong uh, in Christians I think as in non-Christians and uh, we have to deal with it every day in some form or fashion. And uh, it's in front of us all the time. We're, we're made uh, sexual beings as, as much as spiritual beings. It's a part of uh, humanity. And it's difficult for many people to live a sexually pure life in thought and in deed. But that's what we're called to do. Um, to cut it off quickly. Don't delay. 2 Thessalonians 4, verse 3-4. Flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. Don't talk about it. Don't debate it. Don't argue with it. If you know it's wrong, just get out of there like... Joseph leaving Potiphar's wife with his robe. Just run from it is the idea here. No, it's 2 Thessalonians um, 4, verse 3 through 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Um, that's in 2 Timothy 2:22, I believe. And then flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. So it's repeatedly said in the New Testament, just get just don't argue with it get out of there get away from its influence if you know something's going to be a temptation don't look at it don't go there don't talk to him her and etc so what's the alternative uh, the alternative i think would be in romans chapter 13 verse 14 it says don't make provision for the flesh but clothe yourself with the lord jesus christ so that you can live in righteousness i'm paraphrasing Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the answer to help us with sexual immorality today. Is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and wear his identity. <clears throat> Let his life live out through us. His spirit dominate and control us as we walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So we live in a day much like this church with Thyatira. There is sexual immorality present in the church. There are many who tolerate it because we hear today of uh, uh, gay clergy, people marrying gay people, man to man, woman to woman, and everything in between because in the name of tolerance. And they tolerate everything except for the truth that comes from the Word of God. So by God's grace, we clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We take a stand for what is right. And we don't tolerate evil when they grow in our midst. Thank you for listening. 
For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.